Hello, and thank you for tuning in. This podcast is a part of a Bible study series led by our local retired pastor, Dr. Dan Stinson, exploring the letters of 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, and six common themes found within. This week we focus on the theme, hospitality. Tonight we are looking at hospitality, or lack thereof, right? Did anybody read some of the passages related to hospitality in John's letters? You you did read through them. Good, okay. In 2 John, because it's 2nd and 3rd John that really focuses in on hospitality in two different ways. John writes this in 2 John, verse 10. Do not receive into the house of all welcome anyone who comes to you and does not bring the teachings. For to welcome is to participate in the evil deeds of such a person. That sounds pretty strong, doesn't it? It doesn't sound, to me, doesn't sound very hospitable. But what's really going on here? Um, The church is divided over doctrine. The church is divided over whether or not Jesus was fully human or just spirit. And those who believed it was just spirit were beginning to separate from the church and start their own congregations. And so what he's basically saying to them, look, don't allow them to infect you. Don't allow you to follow the misteachings, as he would call them. Uh, So I want to ask you this. What do you think of John's advice? Should we separate ourselves over doctrine? We do. Oh, I know we do. <laughs> you can share if you don't involve yourself with other, other people. Okay. And sharing is, for you is a significant aspect of it. If you were John in the first and second century era, when the church is in its neophyte stages, it's not fully a church yet, it's growing into it. It's, it's currently a sect of Judaism. It hasn't fully separated from Judaism. If you read the book of Acts, where did they worship? Where did they meet? At the temple courtyard or in a synagogue. Two places of Hebrew worship. So they haven't quite defined themselves, even though the term Christian or Christos, Christ followers, is becoming more and more the norm, they're not established like we are today. So you're living in that era. What advice would you give to a congregation that was splitting over this issue? I've tried to use this in my life. It's not always worked well. But one of the things when I when I have when there is a differences of opinion between Christians, myself and another Christian, doesn't happen often. But if there is, I always feel like I can go to them because we're all we have common ground. Just common ground. We all believe that Jesus is who He says He is. And, you know, 
we, you know, we have accepted Jesus Christ as our Savior. And then we try, I try and go from there. So I'm thinking if we all have the same basic beliefs, mm-hmm. that's always a really, really big yeah. place to start and try and... But for John, here's the dilemma. For John, we started earlier looking at truth. For him, truth means to walk in the truth is to walk in the reality of the knowledge that Christ was fully human. And now you have people in your congregation who are trying to get you to leave and go to their congregation because they don't accept that doctrine. So he's dealing with schism. He's dealing with separatists in the church. And he's saying to them, don't let them infect you. Just don't welcome them. So what you So we have an individual who believes that his understanding of Christ is the moral center and the other people are wrong. Right? Because he's saying to me, you don't want them to influence you. Right. Yeah. Okay. Sounds doctrinaire, doesn't it? What's that? That sounds rather doctrinaire. So in and of itself, this could really be a problem for us until we put it into the context of what is he trying to do. He's trying to protect the church from false teachings. Uh, We've done that historically as a church over the centuries. We've separated over issues. Uh, If we didn't do that, we would not have a Roman Catholic church, a Protestant denomination, or an Eastern Orthodox church. You know, we would just not have that. Uh, and people have divided over some real insane things. But I don't think we separated over the foundation of the issue. Right. Foundation of mm-hmm. Commitment. Right? Yeah. Where back then, it seems like to me, we're questioning Right, Exactly. I think a case can be made historically that we have at times. Particularly the uh, Reformation era. That was a major split. Does Christ call only the priest to handle the gospel? Or does Christ call the people to handle the gospel? Okay. Okay. His identity. Right. Yeah. There are churches <clears throat> who refuse to use inclusive language because God, for them, is male. They would never allow inclusive language. You know, that God has to be referred to as him or he. And they're very adamant about it. They're just saying, if you can't abide by this, then you're not really Christian. 
So we, we still have manifestations of it. Okay. Now, Smith <coughs> wrote a book on <coughs> in, of interpretation. This is what he writes about it. Because only some are walking in the truth. The danger represented by the opponents and secessionists is very real indeed. So he's verifying what you're saying is, is real indeed. So what I want to do is I want to share with you some personal pastoral experiences of where separation comes in. Uh, <clears throat> I served the church down in Foxburg, if anybody knows where that is, on the upper Allegheny. It was Emlinton, Foxburg, St. Petersburg. I had those three churches. And at the Foxburg church, there were a lot of folks that would come in the summertime because they had cottages along the river. You've, you know where I'm at, right? And there was one woman, a delightful woman, but she was very definitely a charismatic Christian. For her, it was not really worship if her hands weren't raised and she was speaking in tongues. And, of course, I welcomed her. You know, why not? Everybody's Christian. You know, we have different expressions, but why not? But I had to go to her because when I would leave and Sunday school would begin, she would go to class and try to convince them that unless they were speaking in tongues, unless they were raising their hands, they were not in Christian worship. And I had to very calmly but very firmly say to her, I appreciate your understanding, and I have no doubt that it's valid for you. I have no doubt that this is a legitimate experience that you have, but I have to ask you to refrain from trying to change who we are. That is not our history. That is not our experience. You are always welcome here, but please refrain from that. Now, she was gracious enough to take it, uh, and she kept coming back, but she did refrain from it. In fact, without her support during the summer, we would not have had enough money to survive during the year. I mean, she was very gracious about it. So there are times when you do have to say, you know, in order to protect the whole, we need to clear this up. And I see John doing that. It was so important to him. Uh, she wasn't wrong. You know, she maybe have done some things I would find questionable in terms of trying to convince people to not be who they were <laughs> in that sense. You know, they were United Methodists. We were fuddy-duddy about certain things. We were open about other things. But rather than having a dialogue of saying, you know, share with me, it was like, you need to change. She felt it was the truth. And for her, it was. But I think the church is big enough to include that. You know, I'm, it's not who I am. I grew up in a more traditional, it was the old Methodist Episcopal Church. Uh, it had turned Methodist just a couple of years before I was born. But it was in function, it was Episcopal. It was like going into a Catholic church where everything was said in, instead of Latin, it was all done in English. It was that type of church. Uh, but there were folks who had difficulty with that when the changes came. So even today, we still have issues like that. Now, in 3 John, <clears throat> it's one of two letters in the New Testament that we can say with a fair amount of certainty was written by one person to another. Uh, do you know what the other letter would be in the New Testament? 
Paul's letter to Philemon. Yeah, the letter to Philemon. One person writing specifically to another person. Um, John, I mean, third John is very more than definitely that type of letter. It, it truly is a letter. Um, now, what's going on in, in third John? Who, who receives the letter? Gaius? Yeah, yeah Gaius. G-A-I, Guy, us. He's instructed to show hospitality to who? The word's not in the New Testament. You have to figure this out. Missionaries. People who are being sent out. Evangelists, if you will, but they're basically missionaries. Their mission is to proclaim the gospel in, into new areas. So he's being told by this John to be hospitable. Make sure they're cared for. When they come back to your church, make sure they feed them, you house them, etc. Uh, again, some stories out of my own ministry. When we lived in Uniontown, Maryland, uh, back in 1968-69, uh, we had a missionary who was an African. And he was going to be with us for three days. And it was like pulling teeth to have anybody in the, uh, the two congregations. None of them were willing to receive him. He was African. I'm sure if he had been Caucasian or European, it would be a different story. But they could not see beyond the colorblind you know, situation as to seeing the man as a fellow Christian. And I finally got two families willing to house them. But it took a lot of work. They're just not willing to do it. Uh, the flip side of that is when my very first trip to Israel, the local grocery store owner was from Ramallah, which is just outside of Jerusalem. Ramallah was where the PLO, Yasser Arafat, that's where their office was. Uh, but Naji, you know, in, in that town, in, in West Middlesex, was very gracious, provided everything that he thought I would need. Um, but the day we were to leave, the, the night before we were to leave, his mother died. Because initially, he, was, he had invited 23 of us to visit with his family. Sight unseen, they had no idea who we were, just that Naji had invited us. Oh, great. Good. <laughs> One of those days, huh? Yeah. Um, he was so gracious that he took care of all of that. Uh, in addition, when I came home, I had taken hundreds of pictures. Uh, he, you know, he... Had the, he didn't do it himself. He sent it out to have the pictures developed, and then he would not charge me for it. Okay. Now, when we got there, there was another there was a Presbyterian pastor in our group, and he and I were going to pay a condolence call on his father. Uh, we got to the house. We make a long story short. If you can imagine this, because of the way, and this is still the way it is in Israel, uh, 
if we were going from Chippewa to downtown Beaver Falls, we would have to have a special license plate. There was one for the Arab section. There was one for the Israeli section. And we were taking a taxi who happened to not have the plates that we needed. And so we were caught off guard when we got back. We were really scolded and almost not allowed back into the hotel. But in that environment, Naji's father and uncles and cousins greeted just the two of us, and took us to a restaurant. Because, you know, since his, the, the mother had died, there was nobody there to prepare the meal, so they took us out. Uh, tremendous sense of hospitality. We spent over two hours just talking about the political issues of, of that situation. Uh, but I couldn't ask for any more hospitality than they could give me. Uh, the, Interesting part of that is the entire time we were in the restaurant, there were Israeli jeeps driving around the restaurant with machine guns on the back of the jeep aimed towards the building. And when I got back to the hotel, I discovered that we were in the headquarters of the old PLO. <laughs> so it was a very interesting experience. Uh, I was greatly informed by his family their understanding, the Arab understanding of, of the issues, which, which was great. They trusted me enough to share it with me because the son trusted me. And that was, that's hospitality. Uh, when I was in Africa, and in Nigeria, there was a family who was going to host us, you know, my companion and I were going to host us for the evening meal. And our schedule changed abruptly because in those days, we had to fly from place to place. And we didn't use commercial airplanes other than twice. All the other times, we had private missionary flights. And uh, you would fly as gas became available, you know, fuel was available. And so we had to cancel out. But the Trevenos, who was the family we were supposed to eat with, made a bowl out of half a uh, cassava plant and had decorated it and wrote the name on the inside because they felt that if I couldn't have a meal, I could at least have a bowl that I could have a meal when I got home. Amazing. They didn't know me from Adam. Okay. Uh, Steve Quigg, we were in... Uh, Bambua in Nigeria, and we stayed in the uh, missionary's cottage. Uh, he didn't know us. He wasn't even there. He was back in the States on furlough. But he made sure we had everything we needed at the house. And the interesting thing was, and it shows you just how there are no coincidences, if you will, uh, I noticed that Steve had all of these year-old or more offering envelopes from St. Paul's United Methodist Church in Asbury Park, New Jersey. Uh, anybody know about Asbury Park? It's a little, it's um, Ocean Grove. It's a little 
community that's similar to, but not quite as elaborate as Chautauqua Institute. Right? Uh, and I said to the, to the missionary who was with us, I said, uh, why does Steve have all of these? He said, well, if you notice, there's three pack and three divisions. Remember the old envelopes where you had three tear pots? One for missions, one for capital improvement, and one for ongoing expenses. Well, they use those to dispense medicines. If you had to take medicine three times a day, you put pills in each one so they would know which morning, afternoon, and evening. But making a long story short, Steve was preaching that day in St. Paul's United Methodist Church, Asbury Park, which is where my mother worshipped. She got to hear him the same time I was staying in his house. Amazing. But again, just the idea that he was willing to allow total strangers from across the pond, as they call it, to be in his home when he wasn't even there. Uh, in Zaire, which is now the Democratic Republic of the Congo, uh, they feasted us to a banquet. Now, you're all used to tureen dinners or potluck dinners, every church in the Western Pennsylvania has them. They just call them by different names. Uh, well, they not only fed us, they fed us their food. Now, what I mean by that is, in Africa back then, there were three seasons. The rainy season, the dry season, and the hunger season. Keep in mind, there was no refrigeration. Most of the areas did not have electricity once you left the major cities. Uh, they literally walked five miles to bring food to us so that we could eat. And the food they brought to us was the food that the pastor's families normally would have had. So they went without so we could have. That's hospitality. And the amazing part of that was Ketuba Church was the one in which all the other churches in central Zaire, in Central Democratic Republic of Congo, that's where you would go to have your choir trained. It was, a, it was the mother church of all the other churches in, the, in that district. And they put on a concert for us. And when we left, they formed a line. And there must have been about 30 in the choir. They formed two lines that we walked through. And as we walked through it, they sang the Hallelujah Chorus in Swahili. And I can still hear it clear as day. Again, they didn't know us, but they took care of us. Right? So when Gaius is told to welcome them and to care for them, those churches that I mentioned knew how to do it. Right? So... My question is, what do you think of when you hear the word hospitality? Is John telling us to exclude people or include people or both? How do you understand it? So really, the bulk of the message is about including Yet there is, there is that exclusiveness at times for the purpose of purity. 
or walking in the truth. And again, this, this is important because we don't live that way. We should, but we don't live that way. Uh, they were always concerned, they being the, the various churches, they were always concerned that non-believers would get misinformation by looking at them. That their behavior spoke volumes as to what was correct and incorrect. And they were always afraid that people would misunderstand it. We have all kinds of examples in, in Paul's letters about that. Be very careful. He says, there's nothing wrong with eating meat that has been sacrificed and given to idols. Because you know, the whole system was such that you would go to a market, you would get a good piece of whatever was going to be dedicated in the temple, and then whatever was left over was shared with those who were hungry and poor. So here you have this food that is now available that had been blessed and sacrificed to the idol gods. And Paul was you know, wrestling with the question because people were asking him, is it okay to eat this meat? And the, the issue was, if we eat this meat, are we sending the wrong message to our neighbors that these idols are okay? So they were really conscious of their behavior. And Paul said, yes, it's okay to do that. However, if my neighbor is offended and misinterprets who we are as Christians, then I won't eat meat. That's the background within that situation. That's the context in which it's taken place. What's that? That's kind of like what we talked about last week. Yeah. If they don't eat meat, I don't eat meat. Exactly, yeah. And the reason for it was not because he was a vegetarian, but because he did not want to put pressure on the, the community who was trying to send out a lifestyle of walking in the truth. That also might kind of be like um, someone who um, is an alcoholic, but they're on the wagon or... Mm -hmm. Off the wagon, right. Off the wagon, mm -hmm. off the wagon. Yes. And um, you go out to dinner with them, and you know they're, they struggle with alcohol, and you're going to still order a, a glass of wine or whatever, mm -hmm. order alcohol and drink, and that, that would seem to me... Yeah, yeah. I've been in communities where the ministerium had large debates. Uh, would we go to a restaurant for a meeting if they served alcohol? And being a dry alcoholic, which I am, uh, I remember arguing to go. And the reason I said that to them is, what more of a witness would it be to, to go into a bar and order a Coke instead of a beer or something else? What is that saying to the community? So there's two sides to that argument. Uh, but that was what Paul was facing. That's what John was facing, that your behavior reflects on Christ. What you do and what you don't do is seen by your neighbors. And so what John is doing in both is be very careful what you do because it reflects on who Christ is to this community. Now, I think over the years, churches have taken it to the extreme. You know, I, I grew up in an era where dancing, jewelry, and makeup were sinful. 
I mean, you just didn't do it. I remember the first time we had a dance in the church basement as a youth group. You would have thought that we had become very, very bad people. <laughs> I mean, it was it, the church was up in arms that, that the administrative board, or the old official board back then, granted permission to the youth leader to allow us to have a dance. They would dance unto the Lord. Oh, I know. And he danced naked unto the Lord. <laughs> yeah. 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 And, and he was a man after God's own heart. Yeah, yeah. Well, I remember early on in my ministry, uh, I was asked to do the wedding for the, uh, the son of the organist, and it was going to be held down in Maryland. And, of course, you know, we, Barbara and I went. We had a good time. And I was dancing at the reception. And I loved to dance. You know? And there were members of the church, when they heard about it, were furious. And then I discovered that the most important reason why some of the women were upset was I hadn't asked them to dance. <laughs> I had danced with my wife, but not then, and they were really upset about that. <laughs> okay. So it sounds silly, but we still do it. Right? Uh, do you remember the days? Maybe you didn't grow up that way, but on Friday you always had something other than meat, even though we were Protestants, and you never ate Breakfast on Communion Sunday. You never defiled your body with human food. You reserved it that day for the sacrament. I grew up with that. That was our neighborhood. That was how people thought. Do you think God really cared if we had breakfast <laughs> or gave it up? No, but it was important to us because it was how we understood walking in the truth to be. The difference would be is if we were superimposing and requiring other people to do it that way. That's where the, the line comes in. That's where John was concerned, that those within the fellowship who were doctrinally different were trying to force the church to do it their way rather than the church's way. And that's, what the, that's when he says, don't let them in. You know, don't, don't hold them at a distance. You can love them, you can care for them, but don't allow their crazy ideas to become your crazy ideas.